Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. I'm breaking with tradition today and not going to preach on fatherhood, but I do want to say some things about fatherhood. I'm irrepressible. And especially because our prayer of confession came from Ephesians 3. And let me first read from the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, where in chapter 2, verse 10, the question is asked, it's a rhetorical question, so the answer is known. The question is asked, do we not all have one father? Do we not all have one father? And the answer is yes, we all have one father. There is one Father. We begin the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. And so here in Ephesians 3, we have another example of uh, the fallibility of translators. And you've heard me speak of it before, but I'll speak of it again in verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, Greek isn't difficult. The Greek word here is pater. You all know the word pater. I bow my knees before God the pater, all right, from whom every ponpatria, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. So I bow my knee before the pater from whom all patria gets its name. Patriarchy, patriotism, all right? Same Greek root. It means father. But unfortunately, our Bibles translate it from whom every family gets its name. Well, how do you get family from patria? And there are a couple of answers to that. One answer is that In the past, when they translated scripture, they were not sensitive at all to uh, any attack upon the dignity of fatherhood because it simply didn't exist. So in past centuries, nobody questioned that the father was the head of the home. It, It just was incomprehensible that anybody would question that. And so when they would come to a text like this, and it uses a Greek word that includes, that, that, that is the word that's used for families, a patria, it's a fatherhood. And the closest analogy would be over in Eastern Orthodoxy, where they have a patriarchate, all right? And that is the area governed by a patriarch, all right? That's somewhat analogous, all right? And so they would translate, you know, without real... Uh, uh, without a pitch. They didn't have perfect pitch because they were lulled to sleep by the absence of the attack on God's fatherhood. And so God's fatherhood spread its dignity and authority everywhere. Pagans, Christians, it made no difference. The father was the head of the home. There's never been a matriarchy in all of human history. All right, not even under Margaret Thatcher. It's a joke. It got close. Now, 
Malachi 2.10 says, do we not all have one father? Then Ephesians 3 says, for this cause I bow my knee before the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. All right. And so fatherhood is inescapable. It does not matter how rebellious a culture is. Fatherhood is inescapable. And the reason is that God is the Father Almighty. And he did not become the Father Almighty when he made man. He was already the Father in the Godhead. And so remember, you're not a father because you're a man, but you're a father because you resemble God. All right? It's a completely different way of understanding it that we acknowledge that when a man takes responsibility, when he loves his children, when he disciplines them, when he gives commands, when he bears the responsibility of providing for them, he is showing himself like God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All right? And so all of a sudden, if there's one thing that just makes my teeth, what, crinkle or makes my buttons rattle or makes, I don't know. But if there's one thing that drives me crazy, it's when people speak of roles. And they especially speak of the role of fatherhood. Fatherhood is not a role. You take roles on and off. <laughs> you never take off fatherhood. You can't. It's inescapable and it was there the moment that you were created in the womb. From the moment of your of the fertilization of the egg that produced the embryo that is still you from that moment. You have been father, all right? Just as woman is life giver, is mother of all the living. These are not roles. Now you may not be able to fulfill some aspects of motherhood. God might close your womb and you might never be able to give life biologically, you know, you are mother. And so as I've gotten older, it's become very clear to me that feminism is not an attack upon men. Women aren't trying to usurp men's position. It's stupid. Feminism is a direct attack upon God, the Father Almighty. It is a repudiation and a refusal to live under the fatherhood of God, okay? Don't ever think that it's just a social movement or some sort of utopianism like communism or something like that. Oh, no. It has its sights fixed on God. And that's the reason that people who hate God will not pray to him as father. Okay? Wake up, words have significance. If somebody presents themselves to you as a Christian and they pray to God as creator, redeemer, sustainer, modalism, it's heresy, or they pray to God as mother, if they use the female pronoun to refer to God, they hate God. They hate him. Because God never takes off the role of authority. It's not a role to him. 
It is who he is. All right, y'all with me? I'll stop yelling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, at this point, I started crying in the first service. I will try not to cry. I have been trying to, here we go. I have been trying my best to get many of you men to be a father. And I have so often failed. And it's unbearable to me. It's unbearable to me to see how some of you as fathers don't give a rip about your children. And I see it in your faces. I watch you look at your children and I know you don't delight yourself in them. We have fathers who love money, who love money, and they don't love their children. And it does not matter. I talk to them until I'm blue in the face, and they will not love their children. Love is work. Love is vulnerability. I often tell fathers, if you want to show your love to your children, what you need to do is tell them what you're afraid of. Oh, no, they won't do that. They won't hug their children. You look at their eyes when they look at their children, and there's no delight in their eyes. They love money. But they don't love their children. They love social media. They're social media mavens. And they never get their smartphone away from in front of their face. Oh, they have a big name on social media. And I'm there as they walk out of the church looking at their smartphone. I'm there leaned over dealing with their son. Men, Do you know how the Old Testament ends? Do you know how it ends? These are the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 6. He, speaking of the coming one, will restore, he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Men, love your children. You say, well, I do. I say, no, you don't. I've seen you. I had one young man walk out today, and that poor guy, he'd never seen the Tim Bailey I introduced him to as he walked out. I watch him every single week, and he won't lift his hands with his father. He'd be a teenager. Oh, yeah, buddy. he think he have dignity. Oh, yeah, buddy. He'd be so dignified, he'd be an idiot. Oh, yeah, buddy. I said to him, your father lowers himself and makes himself nothing in his worship of God. 
and you sit there and show your superiority to your father? And he started to argue with me, <laughs> which is never a good thing to do with a Bailey. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get a lot farther with Jody arguing with him, which in many ways will be a blessing. All right? He started to argue with me, and I looked at him and I said, Do you think I am stupid? Do you think I'm stupid? I said, you can call me a lot of things, but don't call me stupid. I said, I'd be watching you. I'd be watching you for the past year. And you never lower yourself to join your father in godliness. Now listen, men. He will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. You want to ask what Russia and China need today, what Japan needs today? What they need is the children's hearts to return to their fathers. Did any of you see the speech that Putin gave at, where was it, Taylor? You remember the men? It was an economic forum. And he was going on and on lamenting the fact that of the plummeting of the birth rate in Russia. What is needed in Russia today? What is needed is that the hearts of the fathers return to their children. And the hearts of the children return to their fathers. That's what China needs. That's what America needs. And so... As you go forward as a church, men, you ready? Lower yourself and love your children. <laughs> Lower yourself and pay attention to the little ones. Love them because you know what? they will love you back. They will love you back. They will notice. And then you will have the joy of seeing what I've seen over the last, how many years have you been in this church, Scott? Yes? What I have watched over the last seven years, which is all the Naylor daughters turning their hearts to their father. You wouldn't believe how hard it's been to preach to you. And the fruit. And that man, all he's done is just grab the rock, this, the rock face of the cliff with his fingernails and held on. What he did was not sophisticated. I ain't gonna let go. <laughs> you know that was about the depth of Scott Naylor's godliness. I ain't gonna let go. And I mean the fruit of that daddy and the joy that it's given me. Now, okay, I'm singling them out. If you don't know this story, learn it. It's a testimony to God's power to restore the years the locusts have eaten. And so that's what this church should be, is a place that honors fatherhood.
and where fathers have their hearts returning to their children, and children have their hearts returning to their fathers, okay? Our Father, we thank you that you are the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And Father, we plead with you to produce yet another generation of fathers who do turn back to their children, and children who adore their fathers and not simply their mothers. Accomplish this through the work of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're on our last sermon on Romans, all right? As it happens, it's Sermon 100, and we end it today. And it's very sweet to come to the end of Romans and to see how we as a church, going through Galatians and 1 Corinthians and Romans, how we've grown in our love for the Apostle Paul. And he is a father to the church, and it's so obvious as he writes. This week, it's the last couple of verses of the final chapter, 16. Let me read to you the word of God, which is eternally true, Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at the end of this letter to the believers in Rome. Rome is a powerful city. It's the capital of the Roman Empire. The church in Rome is not a powerful church. The Christian church there in Rome is everywhere. At that time is in its infancy. And like all infants, she needs tender nurture and care. She needs to be fed. And the Apostle Paul has written this letter in the hope that the souls of this church in Rome will, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it they may grow in respect to salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has done his work feeding them the pure milk of the word. Now, with the conclusion of his letter, he leaves them trusting that through the work of the Holy Spirit in these words he has written, which the Holy Spirit has himself inspired, they will grow in respect to salvation. One final sentence, and he's done. The sentence begins, now to him. Now indicates a transition, in this case, doxology, worship, and goodbye. Then the words, to him, to whom? To God. To him what? What is he saying to him? What is he going to give to God? What is he going to attribute to God? 
Well, as is typical with the Apostle Paul, we have to wait a long time to find out because this sentence goes on and on and on and on. And so you heard it now to him. And now we go into this extremely long series of parenthetical statements, but we'll get back there, okay? Now to him who is able. And so first, this one that he is about to attribute glory to, this one, he says, is able. This one, he spoke the world into existence. You know... He is the one who made us. We did not make ourselves. And he made us out of nothing. And so he is able. Scripture says that nothing is impossible for God. It's really a trip right now. I happen to be at the same place many of you are at. I'm not doing the chronological thingamabugger. But I happen to be in the Gospels right now. It's amazing to go through the Gospels. And again and again and again, he's doing these wacko miracles, right? And they, again and again and again, are shocked. You know, you just watch them going, he did that! You know, he raises somebody from the dead and then he calms the storm. And who is this that can even calm the storm? Well, he just raised somebody from the dead, you know? It's just mind-boggling how they just can't believe what they're seeing. This is God, and he is able. Now, to him who is able what? Well, to establish you. The omnipotent God who spoke the world into existence from nothing is able to establish you. Do you think that you're the establishment type? Now, those of us that were born... 40s, 50s, and 60s get, hear that question a little different, you know? Um, I'm not talking about how you dress or what education you have. Do you look at yourself and do you think, I think that God is establishing a godly legacy through my fatherhood in my home? I'm sure many of you, that's what you go to bed thinking about and that's what you wake up thinking about. I am the kind of man who is is in the process of establishing a godly legacy. Sadly, there are actually reformed men who think that. And of course, with men like that, I, I rather doubt it. Because I've seen the fruit of proud fathers. It's never good. If we're honest, all of us who are men, and God is dignified with children, spiritual or physical, we will admit that we don't think of ourselves as the establishment type. We're amazed to find ourselves with faith. And we we don't tend to think that we're going to be successful as dads. But God works through fathers And what he says here is, now to him who is able, what? To what? To establish you. And the issue was not that the Christians that he was writing in Rome were 
good people that God looked at them and saw some prevenient grace, you know, like they teach at Hillsdale. <laughs> good without God. But if you would like, you can add Jesus. Okay, I'll forget we have Hillsdale people here. God is the one who calls us, who gives us faith. God is the one who establishes us. So if you feel that you're not the establishment type, but that you're incompetent and sinful, (laughs) you're right. Now to him who is able to establish you. Okay? Plead with God. Plead with him. He will answer. He is able. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Now, this is really interesting because I read about seven or eight or nine commentaries on this and none of them said what I'm about to say. Okay, and generally in preaching, that's a no-no. So what am I about to say? Well, you all know, if you've ever had an English composition class, you know that you don't talk in the first person in your writing. You don't say, I, me, and mine. That's for country music songs, right? I want to talk about me. I want to talk about mine, mine, And so if we're honest, when we read this section of Scripture, we find it jarring to our to our ears. It just sounds slightly off. Now to him who is able to establish you according to his God. I mean, that sounds so much better, right? But he says, according to my gospel. Now, why would the apostle Paul do that? Good style does everything to avoid the use of the first person words such as I, me, my, and so why does he speak personally of himself here? Well, never forget that the well-being of the sheep is a deeply personal thing to the good shepherd. The well-being of the sheep is a deeply personal thing to the shepherd. I try to get this into elders' minds, not in this church, but when I speak in other churches. I remember one night with an elders' board talking to them, and many of them had grown up on dairy farms. They were Dutchmen. And I tried to explain to them that a dairy farmer knows every one of his cows. He knows which cow is going to step on his foot when he puts the milker on. He knows which cow has a tail that's going to swat him in the face. He knows which cow is going to get mastitis after, right? He knows his cows. And so now I'm going to come back and talk about the fact that pastors and elders are shepherds. And I'm going to say to you, the well-being of the sheep is a deeply personal thing to a good shepherd. The good shepherd never stops working to inculcate in his sheep their trust for him. I want you to trust me so that you will let me take you to green pastures and quiet waters. 
so that when I say run, you'll run because a wolf is there. So that when I bark, you know that that's actually protecting you and is not something to write up on Julie Roy's site as in another abusive pastor. I want you to trust me. Now stop for a second and think about this. This is my second to last sermon here. And you know transitions are difficult. Now why are transitions between pastors difficult? Well, they're difficult because why? Because the old guy doesn't want to move on. And so he tries to subvert the new shepherd getting the trust of the sheep. Getting the loyalty of the sheep. Oh, no, no, no. It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about mine, 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 mine. But listen. If your goal in inculcating trust on the part of the sheep for yourself as a shepherd is to protect your sheep, how on earth could you not transfer that trust and loyalty to the next man? There's no better indication of a pastor being in it for himself than his inability to have the next man trusted by his sheep. It shows that he's never been a pastor. Y'all with me? And so trust me, I am not going to try to hold on to you. Well, unless your name is Mary Lee. I'm going to try to hold on to Mary Lee. And... I think Allison, too. Maybe Bree. Jonathan. I don't know. I think... What do you think about Josiah? I'm going to hold on to you. Now listen, people. He says, my gospel. There's not one question in my mind when he has just gotten done warning them against false shepherds. Remember a few verses above that he reminds them who it is gave them the true doctrine. Who it is that washed them and diapered them. Who it is that rebuked them. Who it is that gave birth to them. Who it is that has cared for them tenderly. My gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to them, right, through shepherds. And he, in this letter, is a shepherd. And so he's reminding them they can trust him. And he wants them to associate himself personally with the life-giving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a personal statement. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever minimize the personal when it comes to salvation. Did you hear what I just said? Don't ever minimize the personal when it comes to salvation. Jesus was infuriated 
and it awoke the deepest compassion in him. When he looked around at all these shepherds that he had set apart to care for Israel, and saw that the fruit of their shepherding was that the sheep were harassed and helpless. Because they were sheep without shepherds. And so then what did he do? He fed them. He taught them. He preached to them. He gave them the words of eternal life. Jesus loved his sheep. Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus loved you and called you to himself. This is personal with Jesus, would you agree? And then Jesus does not relate to you directly all through your Christian life. But he chooses to have intermediaries that come between him and you, who, through whom he feeds you. He disciplines you. He admonishes you. You should love Pastor Killingsworth. You should love your shepherds. You should love your elders. And you should listen and obey them. One of the worst things about the church today is these women, and I'm using that in a, in a, in a negative connotation. These women who spread all these stories about awful shepherds. If there's an awful shepherd, oh, they found it out and they have all the dirty details, right? You know who I'm talking about, you know? And there are men that do the same. And I don't like him any better, but there's something particularly unseemly about women doing it. And... You know, you could say, well, this is vindicating true shepherds, you know? This is our way of saying that it matters whether or not shepherds are good or bad, right? And so they have to expose the bad ones in order for us to value the good ones, right? I mean, you can see that line of reasoning, right? But the problem is they never, ever try to help you trust good shepherds. Never! If they ever say anything good about somebody, it's some, some old grandmother on Michigan Avenue that hands out lollipops to people coming out of Apple. You know, it's the, what do they call that in World Magazine, the, the, the what of the year, the, the Daniel of the year. Oh, and he's just such a lovable dude. When have these gossips ever try to explain to you why your pastor sometimes scares you. And it's not abuse. No, 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 they don't do that. What they're doing is they're building disciples for themselves. And every two paragraphs, there's a box to support this ministry, this ministry of gossip, this ministry of destroying the authority of the church today. And trust me, if you don't know me, I have done as much as any of them to expose the wicked shepherds there are. But I don't do it asking you to give me money. You already pay me. <laughs> I already get money. But that's not why I do it. You all know that. Okay, you all know that. 
Now listen, the Apostle Paul is a faithful shepherd who inculcates in his sheep commitment to him and trust for him because he knows that this is necessary for their salvation. He knows this, all right? He's not apologetic about it. Now you say, well, what do you mean necessary for salvation? And I say, well, how, how will they preach unless somebody sends them? And you go, oh, yeah, 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 Billy Graham. You know? <laughs> no, not Billy Graham. Your pastor. He is necessary for your salvation. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't need any pastor to know Jesus and put my trust in him. And I say, yes, you do. And you say, where do you get that from? And I say, I get that from all of Scripture. And you say, well, like where? I say, well, like here. He says, my gospel. Does that sound like a guy that's trying to minimize his importance in the life and spiritual survival of the people he's writing? And you read the instructions he gives the pastors in the pastoral epistles. Does it sound like the Apostle Paul has a modern American view of the importance of the church and shepherds? With all authority, he says to timid young Timothy, the pastor. Don't allow anybody to look down on your youth. Listen, the doctrine of the Reformed Protestant church has always been that outside of the church, there is normally no salvation. I'm just quoting the great confessions of the Protestant world. And you say, well, how can that be? And I say, well, if Jesus provides the church to you and shepherds in the church, and you despise him because you're proud or you're an American, what do you think is going to happen to you? And you say, well, I'm not dependent on any man to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I say, well, you're right there because Jesus Christ does call us directly. And he does walk with us and he does love us personally. And he does give us faith. But that doesn't mean that we don't need the church to be saved. And you say, oh, come on, I was saved when I prayed the sinner's prayer. I say, oh, you're sure about that. So it doesn't matter if you persevere. Why would the Apostle Paul write this? He says, now to him who is able to establish you. If he is able to establish you, that must mean that you need establishment, right? Why would he promise this at the end of his letter unless his letter and your trust of him and the things that he says is coming from God were immaterial? And fluff and electives, you know, like basket weaving, right? One of you was telling me you're taking basket weaving at Hillsdale? I'm kidding them. It's a joke. The Apostle Paul understands that it is imperative that we never depart from our mother, the church, until we are promoted to heaven.
Jesus looked and he saw they had no shepherds. And so he gave himself to shepherding them. And what was the Reformation? The Reformation was a revival of shepherding. The Reformers, John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Bucer, Martin Luther, they looked around and they saw that the shepherding that Rome was providing was the shepherding of boxes that they could drop their coins in. And they saw that these people who were trying to honor God, that they had no hope of salvation. And so what did they preach? They began to preach justification. Not by indulgences. Not by plenary indulgences. Not by the treasury of merit and not by infusion. But by faith alone, in Christ alone. And the world changed. Cynical people say it was because of the printing press. It was because of the political dynamics across the Holy Roman Empire. But cynical people don't know the power of God. It's sad today that the Reformation is sold to us as a theological movement. It is that. The Reformation is an unbelievably relational, emotional shepherding movement. It was a revival of biblical preaching. And biblical preaching doesn't come to you over the radio waves. It comes to you from a guy that had too much coffee this morning and has bad breath. Now, I'm using that as an illustration of the fact that every pastor has feet of clay. Pastors are an obnoxious breed. We are. But what are you going to do? It's my gospel. Mine. And you either trust me when I rebuke and admonish you and exhort you and encourage you, or you're an evangelical. And you trust yourself. That's a horrible position to be in. Listen, the church never moves away from individuals and relationships. Never. And those who know God will know that there is no way for them to be established without trusting their shepherds. And it's not that they don't see our sins. <laughs> Do you think I think you're idiots? Remember, I said I'm not an idiot. But do you think I think you're idiots? Do you think I don't know that you see my sins? For heaven's sakes, since when does that abrogate the command to be devoted to fellowship, to the teaching of the apostles, to prayer, to the breaking of bread? Oh, my goodness. Somebody broke a string. Shall I garret myself? 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ are what true shepherds are always establishing you through. And so I will end this section by saying, you have your choice and you must not hesitate to make that choice. Either bond yourself to the church of Jesus Christ and her shepherds, or do not bind yourself to the church of Jesus Christ and her shepherds. One or the other. Bind yourself and receive eternal life through fallen men's ministry of the gospel to you and yours, or refuse to bind yourself and receive nothing from the Lord Jesus. Nothing. Not salvation, not forgiveness of sins, not his body and blood, not the joy of the Spirit, none of it, because you refuse to allow any man to call you to anything so personal as my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than your establishment and perseverance in salvation is at stake with your commitment to the good shepherds of God and the flock they lead and the pure milk of the word they feed you each day, each week, each month, each year, and each decade across your lifetime. He continues, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. On this section of this sentence, scholars debate the meaning of the words, whether it's referring simply to the Old Testament period or whether it's referring to eternity past, to the eons of ages prior to creation, And you remember there's some basis for this because in Ephesians it says that we were chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so we're not exactly sure the limitations on when uh, this mysterious secrecy was prevailing. But we do know that there is a certain um, shroudedness a certain shadowy nature of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We know that the Old Testament is sort of parabolic. It's sort of uh, through a glass darkly compared to when Jesus came. All right? In other words, God hid the truth for a long time. It was hidden. Now, some people are inclined to think that if we say that the truth was hidden from the saints in the Old Testament, that they were saved by being obedient to the law. No, 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 no. The Old Testament saints were saved just the way you and I are today, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ doesn't appear. And I say he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now listen, that's Isaiah 53. Don't tell me that Scripture is not very clear in the Old Testament prophets. Don't tell me you can't see Jesus when Abraham is obedient to God and takes Isaac on top of the mountain and prepares to slay him. And all of a sudden, God says, Stop! I have a substitute! Come on! It's like illuminating Jesus Christ. We don't have the name Jesus, but we are taught to look to God for the provision of our sacrifice. Don't tell me the riot of blood all through the Old Testament is not pointing us to Jesus. You know, something that really um, is, uh, what will I call it? I want to call it sad. I want to call it tragic. But I think I'm going to call it obstinate obstinate. What is so obstinate about Jews who know the Old Testament and will not come to their Messiah? It's obstinate. Don't pity Jews who don't come. Recognize in them a proud obstinacy against the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You don't have to have Joseph Smith's Urim and Thummim to see it in Isaiah, to see it in Abraham sacrificing Isaac. You don't even have to have it to see in the Garden of Eden where God dresses them in, the, in clothes made from animals, the shedding of blood. And so, yes, it is mysterious, and it is secret, and it is hidden. But with those with the eyes of faith, all of a sudden it's clarified, right? And you read in the Old Testament, you go, whoa, did you read what I just read? It says that he will return the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the hearts of the fathers. That's what Jesus does. He says he looks on them with compassion. They're sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus is channeling the love of his father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And all of a sudden, fatherhood explodes. And the substitutionary atonement explodes. And the veil of the temple is rent in two. And he tells Peter, now everything's clean. And you begin to cross-pollinate the New Testament and the Old and everything begins to pop. Okay? One of the things that I have done in much of my life is I have spent a lot of time reading my enemies. And you know that one of my enemies is Orthodox Roman Catholics. I, I don't bother reading liberal Roman Catholics because they're not even an enemy. They're just pathetic. But Orthodox Roman Catholics, you know, I can remember Joe Sobern wrote a great essay on, the, on uh, Easter and the resurrection. And he was my main dude. I learned most of what I've learned from him having to do with anything other than 
scripture. But on this particular occasion, he wrote a wonderful meditation on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I wrote him and I said, Dear Joe, would it be okay if I reprint that in my church newsletter? And I said, I would like to make one change, and that is to pull out your, uh, your, your declaration of the almost divinity of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the middle of the essay, you know. He just managed to insert that in it, you know. And he wrote back and he said, Dear Tim, I'm happy for you to reprint that, but don't you change one word. Not one word. So it didn't get reprinted. <laughs> because <laughs> I was not going to print it with that reference. Now, listen, the other group that are my, that I have read my, most of my life, and they are my enemies, is Jews who reject Jesus. And some of the best writing that there is, some of the best scholarship, some, some, sometimes some of the most honest writing that you can read comes from often atheist Jews. Right? But listen, that's as good as it gets. They reject Jesus. Do you understand? The masthead of the New York Times for many years, has been heavily laden with people of Semitic origin. And none of them ever say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What they do is they tell you that you have strayed and that they have the solution. You need to become like them. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is not against any law of God for us to acknowledge that the condition of Jews today, generally speaking, is horrendous spiritually. Yes, it has been kept secret for long ages past. But there's no excuse now. Jesus Christ is high and lifted up. The Gospels have been written. The hatred of the Jews for Jesus Christ is all through the pages of the four Gospels. And that is damnable. Because he came from love for them. And they were his people. And they rejected him. Don't ever allow political correctness to rob you of truth. It's not worth it. And the world will tell you it'll accept you if you just stop praying to God as Father. If you just stop making any statements about Jews. If you just act as if your wife wears the pants. You know, and, and then as soon as you do that, the world has a whole other set of agenda that it's going to imprint upon you. You won't have gained anything from Satan. 
Satan's always promising you goodies if you go along with him. He never gives you the goodies he promises. And he has more things you're going to have to give up. All right? In Hebrews, it says about this period, it says, so Hebrews is the book of the Bible that is most focused on showing us what was hidden but now is revealed. And it says at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. All right. It has been manifested. It has been made known to all the Asians to all the nations. It has been made known to us. And what has it done? Has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. I was raised an evangelical, right? Wheaton. And it's not until recently that I've come to love this phrase, the obedience of faith. I've tried to figure out why I love it so much. And I think it's because in the circles I grew up in, it was like the sinner's prayer and faith and accepting Jesus and asking Jesus into your heart and all this stuff had a sort of mystical um, content to it. Not because they ever taught the wind blows where it wants, right? That wasn't why. It was because the only possibility, if you had indwelling sin in your life, was that you hadn't somehow really done it right the last time. And so the only solution to indwelling sin for a Christian in evangelicalism was just pray again. And maybe God will answer this time. You must not have meant it that time. Try it again. And so anybody that grew up in evangelical just tried and tried and tried and tried. And it didn't take and it didn't take and it didn't take and it didn't take. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, well, the solution to that is for you to go into a Lutheran church or a CREC church or something like that where they have real sacraments like Eastern Orthodoxy. Someplace where they teach you that when you're baptized, you're a Christian. But I have a little problem with that, having read Romans once. <laughs> Why? Well, because all of Scripture makes the distinction between circumcised foreskins and circumcised hearts. All Israel is not Israel. All right? So sacramentalism 
is a heresy biblically. And so I, I don't buy it. So then why am I so encouraged by the obedience of faith? Well, the reason is that if Scripture speaks of the obedience of faith, that must mean that faith can be obedient that I can obey God's command for me to come to him. Okay? If faith is obedience, then I can do it. Now, I know you got all these, like, warning bells going off in your brain. You're saying, no, you can't. God has to give you faith. I know, I know. But maybe I'm (laughs) talking... I've got to settle down my joking here. (laughs) Listen, when Jesus says, come to me, should you obey? When Jesus says, come to me, does that indicate that you can choose this day whom you will serve? Okay? And you say, yeah, but I can't choose if he doesn't give me faith. And I say, does he say, come to me if the Holy Spirit has already given you faith? That's not how things work. The Bible commands you to put your faith in Jesus. It commands you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Come. The obedience of faith. Believe in him. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Categorical statement. Okay? He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now listen, people. One of the things that a pastor spends much of his work doing is talking to you about your loved ones who do not believe. There is such a thing as the obedience of faith. And because there is such a thing as the obedience of faith, there is also the disobedience of unbelief. Treat people with integrity. Do not demand that God be merciful to someone who refuses to come to Jesus. You say, but it's my children. It's my husband. It doesn't matter who it is. Did you hear what it said? It says, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, you have God commanding you to come to Jesus. If you don't come, you are judged. Your mother might cry over you. God will judge you.
One of the very sad things is to listen to family members describe the wickedness of their children. Parents. Recently, we were meeting with a couple who are caught in the machinations of their family and sin. (coughs) Excuse me. And in the middle of our conversation, Mary Lee said to them, you know, she said, we had a family member who was desperately sick, and so we decided to put together a text uh, set of addresses that we could communicate immediately what was going on because it was time sensitive and the person's life was on the line. And Mary said, it had no sooner started than all of a sudden one of the family members was referring to God as she. And Mary Lee said, there was no reason to do that. None. Why take an opportunity where someone you love is, their life is on the line. And all you're talking about is, and then all of a sudden, she, you know? And Mary Lee's point was that those who are wicked are determined to fill hell up with their loved ones, right? She didn't put it that way, but that's what she was saying. The wicked are wicked. They refuse the obedience of faith. You cannot be sentimental about your loved ones. That's why Jesus said that you have to hate your father and mother and brother and sister and husband and wife. Because you can't allow your soul to be in play because of your ancestors. Everyone hears and makes a decision, certainly in the United States today, you say, no, 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 it's not like that anymore. I say, well, okay, and it wasn't like that in the time of Jesus, and everybody has a good excuse, and so you just go ahead and eat your ginger snaps and drink your milk. I mean, don't patronize people. People hear God saying, come. And they will not do it. It doesn't make any sense for your love, for your family members to cause you to dishonor Jesus who bought you. He's the one that deserves your love. Okay? And then we come to the end. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Remember how we said at the beginning, now to, well, we've, we've come back to it. Now to the only wise God. Now to the only wise God. So this is the sentence that everything else is a parenthesis in the middle of, okay? To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. First of all, the only wise God. You know that for years, we have been warning you not to trust Indiana University, not to trust PhDs, not to seek to grow in wisdom through those who have the terminal degree. All right? 
You remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He is intently committed to destroying the wisdom of man and the cleverness of man. And I can't think of a better description of social media than the promotion of cleverness. And the only choice is which sort of cleverness you prefer. Okay. So a couple of words about God only wise. Yes, it is true that the university, which started out to be as so much like political economy, so much of it started out to be a deeper study of the word of God and its application to life. You know, you go back in the history of Indiana University, that's what Indiana University was. And today, it is the bastardization of every commitment it had when it started. And so, yes, you have to be on guard. But there's still much truth at Indiana University. And there is much good discipline in submitting yourself to professors and to a curriculum. Undeniably. But let me talk for a second about this cleverness. There is a man that I despise. And I'm going to tell you his name. Okay? The man's name is Stephen Colbert. Do you know why I despise him? Because Stephen Colbert is just clever. Endlessly clever. And do you know what happens when you're around people, you watch people who are endlessly clever? You completely lose anything of substance. Because everything's mocked. Everything's a joke. Sometimes it's an inside joke. And if you're stupid, you don't get it. And that's the point. You know, there's a certain author that many of you read who, I don't know what he would write about if he couldn't constantly make inside jokes. Hey, welcome. I didn't see you guys. It's good to have you here. Cleverness has no weight to it. Cleverness has no gravitas. Do you know what glory is? Glory is the opposite of cleverness. Because glory always costs a very large price. Glory is heavy. I have had a lot of trouble with David Carell the last couple of years. Because I had gotten very used to his glory. And it's gone. He's such a lighter man now. Now you think I'm 
just kidding, but actually there's a little bit of truth to this. I have somehow, I'm not as intimidated by David anymore. You know, I, I wonder whether he could actually lift up a bale of hay anymore. That's a joke. Glory is weight. Remember C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. Did you really? Pastor Tallman read it this morning. Listen, God is wise. Remember at the beginning I was talking about how sad and maybe a little bit angry I am at some of you as fathers. Remember at the beginning? Well, I have to say that I have a little bit of uh, anger and much sadness over the resistance of some among you to the wisdom of God. And you say, oh, nobody here rejects the wisdom of God. And I say, oh, yeah, there are people here that think they're smarter than the, than the Bible. And they, they put the Bible on their procrustean bed of reason and logic and find that it fails them. And I laugh at them. I laugh them to scorn. I have never had the word of God fail me. Never. And I am never embarrassed by any specific statement in Scripture. Never. Never. And as I said to one young man leaving church today, and I'm not stupid. You know? I'm not stupid. I'm not ashamed of the creation account. I'm not ashamed of the Hebrew word yom. I'm not ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of all the riot of blood in the Old Testament. I'm not ashamed of the statement the life is in the blood. I'm not ashamed of the statement that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'm not ashamed of when you should and shouldn't have intercourse. I'm not ashamed of what it says about incest. I'm not ashamed of what it says about sodomy. I'm not ashamed that the Bible says that the people that listen to Jesus are in worse shape than Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not ashamed of the repentance of the Ninevites. I'm not ashamed of Scripture, <laughs> honestly, because Scripture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the power of God to all who believe. And where would I be? Can you imagine me without the gospel? I mean, Richard told me that I'm a crazy man. That's... that's that's how he sums up my preaching. You're a crazy man. Tell him it's true. That's what you said to me. Yeah, he has said that a few times, he says, you know. But can you imagine if I was not a Christian? So listen, that's the end. Amen. It ends with amen. And the Apostle Paul, at the very end, is not talking about himself. At the very end, he's giving glory to God. 
Do you know what you will do in heaven? Let me read it to you. I watched, I sat behind a family after I got done preaching, having the Lord's Supper at the last service, and I watched the Father entering into worship, and then I watched the sons. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. Not strong young men. They won't lower themselves like their father to enter into worship. Oh, no, they have their dignity. <laughs> Laugh. It's absurd. Would you date a man like that? You'd never date a man like that. Are you dating, by the way? Okay. Just checking. Listen. Listen to this. This is in heaven. This is eternity. And we read in Revelation 5, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders... And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. With a loud voice. A loud voice. And every created thing which was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I said it in the first service, I'll say it again here, and then we'll eat the Lord's Supper. We'll come to the table. You know, I have complained many times about the absence of anything audible when I preach in this church. It really wearies me that none of you will ever say anything during a sermon. Trust me, when Paul preached, people spoke. But I've particularly grieved it since the death of Adam. Because Adam was the only one of you that had the faith to speak amen. Did you notice that people were doing it this morning? I suspect they were in the first service. I don't know. Was, am I wrong? Right? I'm right. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> Would you all help Jody preach and the other pastors preach by speaking to them and strengthening them? And would you give yourself to worship in a way that's unseemly? Because you know what you're going to do there, you do here before. So tune your instruments at the door. Okay? This is John Donne, guys. I, I reversed it, but that's what it says. And so lose some of your dignity here. Forget yourself. Forget that you're German. Can you do that just for a few minutes every week? You know? Channel your mother. She's up doing it now, and you know she's doing it. All right. Let's come to the Lord's table.